Welcome to the Ray Harryhausen Podcast, the show dedicated to the life, career and films of a special effects titan. Join us as we host in-depth discussions about the work, influences and legacies of this uniquely talented filmmaker. Brought to you by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, we will be delving into Ray's archive to bring a unique insight into his work, including exclusive audio from the man himself. We will be joined by special guests for retrospectives, exclusive announcements and competitions so this podcast is a must listen all fans of the world of ray harryhausen animation and classic filmmaking Hello and welcome to the Ray Harryhausen podcast. My name is Connor Heaney. I'm the collections manager with the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation. And today we have a very special interview for you. Our trustee John Walsh has spoken with Neil McConnon and Patrick Geiger at the Barbican Centre in London about a very special science fiction exhibition that they have planned for 2017. I'm joined once more by John today. How are you, John? Hi, Connor. I'm good today, thanks. How are you? Yes, I'm very well, and I'm very excited about this exhibition that we have planned with the Barbican for next year. The interview with Neil and Patrick will more or less speak for itself, but we'll just provide a bit of context here. It's the sort of exhibition that might play with people's expectations and preconceptions about the sci-fi genre and how Ray Harryhausen's works fit into it. Yes, that's right. I mean, when I spoke to them both... Um, just a couple of weeks ago about the event. It's called Into the Unknown, A Journey Through Science Fiction. So for a lot of people, when we think of science fiction, we might think of Star Wars. But of course, you know, George Lucas didn't invent science fiction. It's been in, in, in literature and in art for, for centuries. Uh, but interestingly, we did have a discussion about who, um, who invented the phrase sci-fi, because it's often attributed to Ray's good friend, uh, Forrest J. Ackerman, um, the founder of famous Monsters of Movieland. Uh, magazine, but um, Ray's going to be a part of, if you like, the evolution timeline of science fiction in popular culture. And the guys were saying to me that they don't think this could have happened maybe, you know, uh, 30 or 10, 20 or 30 years ago. The time is kind of right, it's kind of ripe for it. So Ray is um, a big part of what is a larger exhibition all about science fiction because not all of Ray's films feature as, as science fiction, do they, Connor? Even though they've got fabulous monsters, there's a there's a kind of a, a separation of genre there. No, absolutely. And I think a few people, when they think of Ray Harryhausen, would think primarily of his fantasy films and his films about mythology or about dinosaurs. And it really is a kind of subtext throughout Ray's work where he was more involved with the science fiction genre than you might expect. Um, there's the obvious films such as First Men in the Moon, and Earth vs. the Flying Saucers. But Ray was very heavily influenced by early science fiction writers such as Jules Verne and H.G. Wells. And so, as you'll hear, the guys from the Barbican are interested in aspects of Ray's work that you might not necessarily believe to be science fiction at first glance. Yes, that's right. So 
here we go. Here's my exclusive interview with the guys, and uh, we'll catch up again in uh, in a few moments. People of Earth, attention! People of Earth, attention! I'm at the Barbican today with Neil McConnell and Patrick Giger. Uh, Neil designed the. Um, Neil actually worked on designing 007, 50 Years of Bonds. Uh, Neil, if I can start by asking you a bit about that, because that was an incredibly successful exhibition. It, it was indeed. It was probably the most successful show we've done in our 35 year history here. And it was a big, branded, heavily branded British brand, uh, cinema brand franchise. Um, that we wanted to really celebrate over the Olympic period uh, in, in London. So it was, it was a show that we staged here in 2012. As I said, we wanted to rally around a big British brand and what better brand, what better uh, film brand than, than E.ON, than Bond. So we, we collaborated with the E.ON production uh, studios. Uh, they made their entire archive available to us, this wonderful facility that they have just outside of London. Uh, two guest curators, uh, Oscar-winning costume designer called Lindy Hemming, and a design historian called Bronwyn Cosgrave. And we, we really lifted the lid off 50 years of, of filmmaking. So all of the artistry, the craftsmanship, the people behind the scenes, the, the often overlooked people who are really responsible for creating these amazing films that really have changed in many ways uh, the, the, the way that... that uh, movies have made uh, over the last 50 years. So, so we wanted to, as I said, to reveal the process and really to highlight and showcase some of the often overlooked uh, film production people. And so we're here today to talk about a very special film project as well, because next year's 2017 science fiction exhibition is going to very have a, a very strong sort of film element to it. So Patrick Giger, can you tell me what's the title of the exhibition and why it's right now for the uh, for science fiction to make a big comeback here at the Barbican? So the, the exhibition is called Into the Unknown. Uh, the subtitle is A Journey Through Science Fiction. And the idea is really to explore the realms that science fiction has explored uh, as a genre, from uh, uh, exploring the surface of the Earth to going under the sea, then uh, uh, under the Earth and then towards the sky, to, to space, and then going back to mankind, future cities, transformation of our own bodies, going inside our bodies, inside our minds, creating cyberspaces. So it's like this journey through science fiction and the realms of science fiction. Um, why now? Because uh, I think we ask ourselves, you know, it's not new, but we ask ourselves where we're at in the present and what the future holds more than ever. Uh, maybe because there are not so, it seems there are not so many alternatives to the future at the moment. So, um, and also because I think we live in the utopias and dystopias of our, of the previous generation. So we have global surveillance, but also free education and free healthcare. So we are at a very interesting moment, beginning of 21st century still, uh, we've passed the, the, the mythical year 2000. Nothing dramatic happened. So, you know, it's a good time to question ourselves, uh, what does the future hold? And it's a great setting to have it in, of course, because the, Bar the Barbican Centre is slightly reminiscent of Logan's Run, isn't it? In the movie Logan's Run, with all of this sort of brutalism and its concrete sort of structures. So um, you're working with lots of different organisations, including the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation. So you, you spoke to me earlier about your first meeting with Ray. So when did that happen and what, what transpired? I was... Um... 
in my previous uh, position, I was running a science fiction uh, utopia and X-ray journeys uh, museum in Switzerland, which has one of the biggest uh, archives uh, in the field, mostly paper-based archive documentation on science fiction. That's the archive of Pierre Versant, one of the main scholars of science fiction. Um, and through that, I did a number of exhibitions. And I was really interested in uh, doing a, an exhibition with Ray because I had been a big fan since I was a child. Um, and I met him in Neuchâtel at the film festival where we got him invited probably in 2001 or 2002. Um, I was doing a Q&A with him and, you know, all kinds of public programs. And then he invited me very kindly to his house uh, in London. So I, I went to his house and he showed me all of the, the, the art that he had and also the Willis O'Brien art and the other things that he was, he, he was, you know, he had kept from the, the years where he was uh, working in Hollywood and told me about the trust and the foundation that he had, uh, he had set up in Scotland and that could, you know, maybe tap into that as a point to a, to do a project. Um, I saw him again, uh, a year or two after that because I got him, him invited in Nantes, uh, to, um, the science fiction festival, big festival called Utopial, uh, which I directed at the time. Um, so again, big Q and A and meeting with fans and all that. The exhibition didn't happen, unfortunately, with his work at that time. Uh, and then I left the museum. But uh, once I was brought uh, to this new science fiction project here at Barbican, then I thought it's it's about time that we go uh, back to Ray Harrison's uh, work and show how he celebrated Jules Verne and H.G. Uh, um, Wells and all those pioneers of science fiction. He, he himself being a pioneer. So... Uh, we're going to try and hope uh, to show some of things that nobody has seen before. So editorially, where do you think Ray kind of slots in? Because you've got lots of different contributors. There's lots of mixed media having with props and films and so on. And of course, literature. So where do you see sort of Ray's legacy, I suppose, is what I'm asking? Well, I think, you know, it's going to be in the chapters at the beginning of the show where um, we're still exploring the surface of the planet uh, with all of the the dinosaur films, Valley of Guanji and, uh, you know, Mysterious Island, all the references to, to Jules Verne. So he's going to be, uh, uh, there along with Jules Verne himself, where, you know, we have original manuscripts and items from Jules Verne. We have, um, yeah, I mean, you know, we have amazing kind of old kind of 19th century, uh, books and all those really beautifully, uh, uh illustrated, uh, hardcovers. And it's, you know, Ray Harrison is really, at the junction between Jules Verne, Melies, and Kubrick, in a way, you know, and Douglas Trumbull. So he's going to be there between uh, extraordinary voyages and space odysseys. And we're going to also try and show things from the beast from 20,000 Fathoms and Earth versus Flying Saucers and War of the Worlds and all those kind of space-related uh, um, films that um, Ray has worked on. Some of them not being released, but, you know, they still have really great archives and First Man on the Moon, of course. You know. So it's, I think Ray was really interested in that period, you know, early 20th century um, kind of beginning of science fiction, lost worlds, you know, uh, going to space, you know, strange creatures, uh, prehistoric monsters. You know. So that we're going to try and celebrate that. It's interesting you mentioned War of the Worlds because Ray's concepts for War of the Worlds 
involve the Martians having actual tripods. So unlike George Powell's version, which was very much a Derek Meddings approach with strings holding up the Martian ships, it's a shame Ray's one didn't come to the screen, but we have some fabulous artwork. We do, and we, we, we hope to show it. Now, the surprising thing about Ray and his work is that Hollywood is quite disposable and, I suppose, unique like the, the James Bond archive. They've kept lots of the items from the films and Ray kept everything. He was a hoarder by modern standards. Whereas, have you found it difficult when you've been looking for other productions that most things get thrown out and they set special effects, props, spaceships often get thrown away at the end of the shoot. How difficult has that been for you finding what you wanted? It's been very difficult because, uh, it was, it was never in the tradition of Hollywood to keep any of those items, mostly the special effects ones. The costumes people used to keep, uh, because they were reused in many things. Everything that was, uh, that had a semblance of reality or could be used or cars, uh, you know, tables even, those things would be kept. But everything which was very specifically done for a film, uh, mostly fantasy or science fiction film, you know, was either kept by the people that made them or it was thrown away. And we were with Neil, um, uh, recently in Hollywood and we were at uh, Paramount and Warner Brothers. And those archives that are very, very recent. The Warner Brother one, which is really nice, has been up only for maybe 15 years, 20 years. Mm-hmm. And the Paramount one has only been <coughs> going on for 10 years, not even. So the creators that we know, and there are many, uh, there are people like Patrick Tatopoulos that has kept a few things because he was allowed to leave the studios and the production with them. Um, it's very rare, actually, that it does happen. And I know many cre- uh, creators that don't have anything. Uh, we have a few things from the H.R. Giger uh, Museum uh, that he has kept or recreated. Um, we have things from, uh, yeah, from the recent films like Interstellar or Inception. But those, that period, uh, has ended also because now it's all digital. So it's all virtual effects and 3D, uh, computer generated. Uh, so in 10, 20 years, it's going to be very difficult to find anybody like Ray Harrison because all the work would have been done on computer and it's not going to be easily accessible. There's, there will be no bottles, no original art. So it's a very specific uh, thing to, to bring to the public, I think. And it also shows the history of the media a little bit. Yeah, but when you think about the, the years of the 50s, 60s and 70s, other people are working alongside Ray Harryhausen, maybe been Derek Meddings on a variety of Bond films and lots of other special effects productions. And Derek Meddings' family don't own most of those models because, of course, he was hired in as a gun for hire, yeah. so he doesn't own those properties. Mm-hmm. So they may have been destroyed or lost or sold. So I suppose Ray is quite unique in that sense. And Very unique. The producer as well as the special effects. The, the, the difference between Ray and those some of the other uh, special effects uh, people is that Ray was the initiator himself of the content. He came to the produ- producer. He was sometimes the producer himself, and he came to the producer a- as the um, as the person who, who carried the project. He said, "Let's do this film. I have this idea. Here are the concepts for the, this film." And he would try to sell the project to uh, producers and studios, and then they would hire a director. Uh, so because of that, he had a, a a power on the film, which was quite different from another artist, it would just be brought in to do a few drawings and key items. 
or even kind of not key items, uh, and then would would leave after a week or two weeks. It would it would be on the set and doing working on the film from the very early stages to the end. And I think that's quite rare, rare today, even. One of the challenges we have at the foundation is that the pieces, because they're mostly made of rubber with metal skeletons inside, they're deteriorating. And the earlier pieces obviously have deteriorated more than some others. Um, you've had a chance to look at the archive in recent years. Both, both of you, in fact, went to the archive in recent times. What did you discover when you were there? What did anything surprise you or does anything excite you in particular? Yeah, Neil, if I can start with you on that one first. I, I think the sheer volume of it, to see so much material in one place is just astonishing. Um, to, to see, you know, the, the level of detail in, in, in the drawings and in, in the models and the cuts, uh, and, and yeah, to follow the, the, the traje- trajectory of, of, of Harry Hansen's thinking and creating these things. Uh, it's such a unique uh, perspective and, and, and a real privilege to be able to to, to witness that um, and, as I say, to to follow the, the mindset and, and the production process. I think that, for me, was the revelation. Um, yeah, just simply astonishing. And, Pat- and Patrick, did you find that being there, because I, I often feel like I'm a, a, a child in a toy shop, you know, I want to see this one, I want to see that one, you know, where's Pegasus, where's Bubo the Owl, there's different versions and so on. Did you find it was sort of an embarrassment of riches? It was very tempting to spend more time and to go through everything. We were lucky enough, it's only, we're not only doing a show on science fiction. So, you know, directly a lot of the stuff was not relevant. So, thank God, you know, but otherwise, yeah, we would have brought in like all the little creatures from all the boxes. And there is, and I hope that's going to happen. There is enough material to, to do like, a show only on Ray Harrison and a big one. And I, th- I hope that's going to happen soon because it's, there's a lot of beautiful stuff. I was also impressed by the amount of material, but also the, the type of content, the fact that there were storyboards and the models and maquettes and what we call the key drawings, those big kind of A3 or A2 drawings that represent a, a specific scene f- almost for each movie. So there's, there's, there are things from, from all of the movies and a lot of different things from the different movies. So that was, that was really surprising that there was so much stuff. But, um, yeah, it was also good that there are several films we were not getting into, like Clash of the Titans or all the Sinbad or, you know, the, the Greek mythology we're not going into because it's just, <clears throat> you know, it's just outside of what we're going to show in the, in the exhibition because it's not science fiction. You know? Whereas Valley of Guanji is, you know, in my, in my perspective. Now, other than the, the obvious assets like the key art, the concept art you talked about, and the, and the monsters themselves, and the foundation actually has a, a sort of film and tape archive or a digital assets archive. And we've recorded about 25 hours worth of oral histories with Ray that have never been heard before. So do you hope to use some of those oral histories perhaps in the exhibition? Are there any plans for that? I think it's a bit early to, to tell. Um, the exhibition is not about the the, uh, the process of film the, of making the film. It's, it, it will try to keep the this kind of sense of wonder and the suspension of disbelief thing. We're promoting, or we're you know we're we're doing science fiction for its own sake. We're not showing how it's done, you know. So we're not going too much into the design of the film. There there are a lot of design elements, of course, but the backgrounds of the films are not discussed too much. Um, but now that you tell us that there is that, that element of the archive, we, we have to go and think about it and see if that can be used 
maybe also on different uh, supports like the website and you know, having Ray Harrison discuss this one specific films and why he likes Rose Verne or you know, other questions like that. When we've worked recently with academic writers, we, we've talked about the issues that when race films came out in the 60s and 70s, they were considered to be children's films. And even the studios didn't regard them with any great respect. So they would never be available for the Oscars corridor. So Ray never won an Academy Award in his lifetime. Um, was never even nominated for films like Jason and the Argonauts. Luckily, that was, that's been amended now with his special Academy Award. Um, it seems editorially there's been a big shift. When race films were released, some of the reviews were quite sniffy and a, bit, and a bit dismissive. Whereas now, those young people who went to the cinema to see race films are now in charge, if you like, of that editorial conversation. Mm-hmm. And he's been completely reassessed in his own lifetime. I think that's quite unusual for a filmmaker. Absolutely. It's very unusual. It's, it's, very, um, it's a very good thing that it ha- did happen, mm-hmm. that he, he lived long enough to kind of uh, see that people were really... A lot of people, like, we know the names, but you know there are a lot of people out there that are big fans of his, you know, and that paid homage to, to him and his work. And it, it's good that he, he was able to, um, uh, not just to be a cult figure, but he, he, he went a bit more mainstream at the end, you know. Because people think science fiction, they think Star Wars, don't they? And often if you say to the man in the street, name something science fiction, oh, Star Wars or Star Trek. And when Ray died in 2013, George Lucas was quoted as saying, without Ray Harryhausen, there would likely have been no Star Wars. I think, in a sense, that sums up what you're mm. saying about the, the children that he influenced that later became filmmakers, like Peter Jackson and, and James Cameron, who, who came to the altar of Ray Harryhausen and very much sought an audience with him when they were having their big films released in London. Absolutely. I think he was a major influence on in many people, you know, and uh, across the genres, even. You know, I mean, people like me, you know, that got interested in science fiction, this partly because I've seen the films when I was a kid, you know, and, and not only Ray Harrison, but that, that he was a big influence for sure. I, I also know um, from Barbara's perspective, having done a Pixar exhibition and a, and a Lucasfilm Star Wars exhibition that both George Lucas and John Lasseter were just hugely indebted and, and were quite, you know, at every opportunity would express that debt of gratitude to Harry Harrison um, as, as a, just a, an incredible pioneer. So he, his influence is, is just... Cannot be overstated. That's marvellous, isn't it? Because if you think there was no internet when Ray was making films, his last film in 1981, Clash of the Titans, there was no real opportunity for fans to interact unless they found his, his address in London and posted him a, a letter. So there was none of the Twitter or none of the Facebook vibes or, you know, when a new film opens there, you know almost instantly if it's going to be liked or not liked yeah. by fans. So for Ray, it's been a, quite a slow process. And often when we would speak to him about giving a talk about a film or just an anniversary coming up, or even recording commentaries for his films, because none had been recorded for, for most of his films, including Clash of the Titans and Golden Voyager Sinbad and so on. He felt that what he had to say would perhaps no longer be relevant and that people wouldn't want to hear it. So I think he was always surprised when people wanted to show a film. Oh, they're going to show one of my movies again. Why, why, why would they show my film? Um, thinking that perhaps he'd been forgotten, because in a sense he left filmmaking at a time when special effects were really taking off. If we think of the work of Industrial Lice and Magic yeah. and Phil Tippett, who was, if you like, the natural successor to the work of Ray Harryhausen with Go Motion and yeah. uh, Dragon Slayer and The Empire Strikes Back, I think he felt he'd, he'd retreated into the shadows and that he'd been forgotten. So I think it's marvellous that the Barbican is recognising his work along with, mm-hmm. with other filmmakers as well. 
but I hope also it gives an opportunity for, you know, obviously we can show only a, a small portion of, of the archive, but I would hope that that, that small, the small amount of works that we can show will inspire other curators, other museums to perhaps revisit this material, um, you know, to talk to you guys about doing something more large scale that would really, um, I think from, from the visit that we had to the archive, that there is a, a major retrospect that is warranted. So I would hope that this would be the first of many exhibitions that will, you know, that, that, that will come out of that wonderful facility. Yes, well, I do hope so. And, you know, it, it's, it's an opportunity in the way that Star Wars has been an opportunity to get young people to revisit Harryhausen. With this exhibition, we can get our fans to revisit the greater sort of literary context for science fiction. Because, of course, you know, Ray Harryhausen didn't invent science fiction. I think Forrest J. Ackerman, Ray's friend, would have said that he coined the phrase sci-fi. But, of course, science fiction literature has been going on for, for centuries. So I suspect that if we can bring our fan base here to the Barbican, then they'll certainly learn something here as well. Yeah, because there are still quite a lot of people, maybe of the younger generations, that have, they don't know Ray Harrelson. So it's a it's a good thing to, to actually bring him back under the limelight again, also through that through that exhibition. That's great. Well, thanks very much for talking to me today, and uh, we look forward to the exhibition. When's it coming on again? We open here on the first of June, running through to the first of September next year, twenty seventeen. Brilliant. And we'll be back, hopefully, to do another special podcast uh, on the ground, as it were, in the exhibition space. Thanks, Rich. Thanks very much. Soon others will be coming from Earth. Our galleries will be strewn with dead. I'm the only one who holds the secret of Cabrite. Then you and your secret will remain here on the moon. So, Connor, what did you make of that then after um, hearing our uh, our exclusive chat there with the Barbican and their very special plans for, for 2017? I, uh, I found the interview incredibly interesting. I found Neil and Patrick's ideas quite thought-provoking and uh, definitely rich in, in value. Um, when, I must admit, when they initially spoke to me about the kind of things that they were interested in viewing from the collection, I thought there'd maybe been a miscommunication because... I didn't really understand how a film like The Valley of Guanji fits in with the theme of science fiction. And uh, as you just heard, you know Neil and Patrick have this vision of lost worlds, early science fiction, and how the first science fiction films tied in with the works of Jules Verne and H.G. Wells. Now, Ray's work throughout, throughout his career touched on this kind of classical rit- literature, and he you could say, really shaped the way that a lot of people think of these classic novels and fantasy tales to this day. Um, I suppose another aspect of Ray's work which is very interesting is that of Lost Worlds, um, through which he's very indebted to his mentor and predecessor, Willis O'Brien. And, of course, Ray was really heavily influenced by by King Kong. But a lot of uh, O'Brien's work was stories about Lost Worlds. So there was the film The Lost World about dinosaurs, um, there was King Kong, and then there was lots of other projects, which some some of which never got off the ground, including the Valley of Guanji, which Ray later went on to make, which are about discoveries, about things that are technically scientifically possible. They're, they're not completely outrageous. They're not set in the future. There are things that could have happened, um, discovering lost civilizations and creatures which have been lost to the midst of time. So encapsulating Ray as an architect of this genre of early science fiction, lost worlds and stories which were scientifically possible and 
at one point were science fact, I think is a very interesting perspective on his work. No, definitely. So when people go to see the exhibition, of course, it's all very well designed and curated and and it's there for um, for people to just walk into. And I think sometimes people think, you know, there's big store houses and warehouses full of raised stuff that's all boxed and, and ready to go. And you just kind of wheel it up in front of uh, the, uh, the public. But um, in terms of being a collections manager, what does it mean when barb can come along and they're looking for artwork and stills and some of the models it's you you can't just open a, a cabinet and, and and point the the items you want and say there you go can you i mean how, how does it actually work unfortunately not no uh, one day maybe but uh, as it is we have we have a, a very good idea of what we have within the collection there's around 16 thousand items documented but that is a fraction of the estimated 50,000 items within the collection um, for the first time all of race collection is under one roof so it's all here but there's there's the quantity as as you heard um, Neil and Patrick speak about there, the quantity of the collect, collection can be slightly overwhelming and so it, it took um, for, for their visit which was only a, t- a few short hours and um, which is only accessing a percentage of the collection you know there was select models and select artwork that they were interested in it t- takes a lot of work to lay that out for them to browse through in a manner that's not going to completely overwhelm them or confuse them um, and they, they as they admitted they could have been there all day had, had they the time you know they, they could have spent a week within our archive browsing through Ray's fantastic collection um, as it is you know there's there's hidden treasures in every corner of the archive, which are are yet to be properly catalogued and discovered. But what what the um, what the guys were interested in primarily were the original models, um, a lot of which have survived incredibly well. Models from Mysterious Island, One Million Years BC, First Men in the Moon, and Earth versus the Flying Saucers, amongst others. But also Ray's artwork and storyboards, which are are completely fantastic and I'm sure a lot of our fans and people who follow us on Twitter and Facebook have seen this artwork um, on, on their computer screens or on their phone screens but seeing this stuff in person is is quite mind-blowing when you see not only the scale but the quantity of work involved in a film like Mysterious Island there are incredible pieces of artwork for every single scene in the film plus deleted scenes and and uh, early concepts and so forth. So, so having this prepared in an organised manner for them did take a, a lot of work. But they were they were so impressed by by Ray's material. It's a wonderful collection, and I think it's it's going to be an interesting opportunity to showcase an aspect of Ray's work that people sometimes might not consider. And despite the fact that it's just a small fraction of his entire collection, it's really going to be quite wonderful to see it within the context of a an exhibition which celebrates the history of science fiction over many, many decades. Well, that's great, Connor. We hope that, um, you know, the fans of Ray Harryhausen and science fiction will come along and see these items as it were in the flesh for some of the monsters and all their rubber glory. And of course, the artworks have to be sort of seen to be believed. So people who go to galleries will, will appreciate what I'm saying there. And, you know, there's an opportunity to see also some of the films that weren't made. So some of the artwork perhaps the test footage from Ray Harryhausen's War of the Worlds, which would have had fabulous Martians on tripods, as discussed in that piece. But, um, well, you've certainly got your work cut out, Connor. I'm looking forward to seeing what you uh, you and the guys at the Barbican put together. 
and uh, we're, we're going to be hearing a bit more about um, some of the things you're up to at the end of this month because you've got a Lost Treasures presentation to give, haven't you? Tell me about that. That's it. John and I will be attending the Starburst Festival on the 26th of August, which is at the end of this month. And we really have something for everything. This is Starburst Festival's family day. So there's going to be a lot of families, young children there, as well as people who are long-term fans of Ray Harryhausen. So we've put together a little a little presentation that's going to be intriguing for all involved. So we're going to be showing John's fantastic documentary, Movement Into Life. And that's not available anywhere else. That You can only see that if you come and see John speak. And John's going to talk a little about his his experiences with Ray and about Ray's career. And we're then going to move on to exploring some of Ray's lost treasures. Now I counted today, at the end of An Animated Life, Ray's book from 2009, he details 53 projects which he would have liked to have worked on, but which just didn't didn't come about for one reason or another. Now, we can't talk about every single one, but these projects range from a single sketch or a single drawing that Ray had envisioned and just never got around to making, to projects which had been storyboarded, had models created for them, had test footage created for them, and sometimes even location shooting had taken place. And so for the Lost Treasures presentation, we're going to be looking at key key stories and key movie projects which Ray just couldn't make for one reason or another throughout his career, from the very early days back in the 1930s, all the way through to movie projects in the mid-1980s after he'd retired um, that maybe would have seen seen him making one or two more films after Clash of the Titans. And there's going to be some incredible imagery, storyboards and test footage from throughout these Lost Treasures. And it just goes to show, I mean, throughout Ray's life, he was creating constantly. And some of the ideas that eventually did end up making it in the films were from artwork that he'd created a decade or two decades earlier. And it's just this incredibly incredibly rich well of inspiration and creativity that Ray was able to dip into. And it's incredible to think that the 15 Ray Harryhausen films that we do have and can watch at our leisure are just a fraction of this potential that of films that could have been made and for various circumstances weren't. Uh, you mentioned War of the Worlds there. I think that's the one which Ray was most keen on having developed. It just didn't come about and he was very disappointed about that. But we have so much rich material late to that film. Um, key drawings, storyboards and some test footage as well as a couple of models relating to the project. And for that reason, you know, we can uh, we can stretch our imaginations. We can imagine, I think, quite clearly what Ray's vision for H.G. Wells' A War of the Worlds would have looked like. Absolutely. And just so people know, we mentioned last month in the Clash of the Titans um, podcast special about Starburst magazine. So those fans of Starburst magazine will know that uh, Starburst was a big supporter of Ray's films um, throughout the 70s and 80s, their golden years at the magazine. But of course, it's still thriving today. You can find out more at starburstfilmfest.co.uk and you can follow them on Twitter at starburstff. So... Come along, say hi to us. We're going to be doing some special podcasts at the film festival, so we hope to speak to perhaps some of the fans. Do come up and say hello to us. Please be nice. Don't heckle me too much um, and Connor when we're giving our presentation. Um, but do come up. You know, ask us questions. You might be part of a future podcast. And I think Caroline Monroe is going to be there as well. Very exciting. 
Um, she's been a trustee here, of course, at the Ray Harryhausen Foundation. There's going to be a screening of Golden Voyage of Sinbad. So it's going to be a, a great day on that, that bank holiday weekend in Manchester. And this is the inaugural um, film festival for Starburst. So we're particularly thrilled. And I know Ray would be because he kept all of the editions of Starburst magazine that featured his films. So it's going to be a great time, Connor. Yes, it's going to be a wonderful weekend. And alongside our appearance, there's going to be a lot of other fantastic guests and activities. So it really is a, a must-see event. And if, you, if you're able to get to Manchester on that bank holiday, I'd, you won't regret it. There's a lot of fantastic activities for all the family. And I'm going to geek out wearing real fanboy-style T-shirts. And me and Connor are going to have like a, a, a geek-out walk-off or something like that privately in our own minds, of course. Um, but let us know anything you think, what you think of us, what you think of the foundation is doing. And uh, do come up and say hello. We want it to be a fun sort of family day, as Connor says. So um, I'm looking forward to it, Connor. It's going to be great fun. It certainly is. I'm really looking forward to it. Great. OK, well, uh, we'll see you there. Take care then. Thanks, guys. Copyright in the Ray Harryhausen podcast is owned by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, a registered Scottish charity, number SC001419, 2016. This recording may not be reproduced in whole or in part without written permission from the Foundation. The views expressed within these podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of the Foundation, its trustees or employees. For further terms and conditions, please contact us at rayharryhausen.com where you can also find our Facebooks and Twitter links.